You're listening to the ACOG District 2 podcast series on the front line, managing OUD in pregnancy. The views expressed by the speakers and moderators do not necessarily reflect those of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Please note our disclaimer in its entirety on our website at www.acogny.org. I'm your host, Heather Friends. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Mishka Turplin to talk about the basic principles for screening pregnant patients for substance use and how you start that conversation. Dr. Mishka Turplin is board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and in addiction medicine. His primary clinical, research, and advocacy interests lie along the intersections of reproductive and behavioral health. He's the addiction medicine consultant for Virginia Medicaid and a consultant for the National Center on Substance Abuse and Child Welfare. He is a senior physician research scientist at Friends Research Institute and adjunct faculty at the University of California, San Francisco, where he is a substance use warm line clinician for the Clinical Consultation Center. Welcome, Dr. Turplin. Thank you for having me. Dr. Turplin, how do you determine who should be screened for substance use? Well, first, it's important to state that substance use is common, and many, many people use drugs. And there are health consequences to substance use. And therefore, talking about drugs is a meaningful and acceptable and pertinent domain of clinical care. It's important to lay down a couple of definitions, I think, at first. First is the difference between screening and testing. When we're talking about substance use, testing really means looking at a biological substance, urine or meconium for the presence or absence of metabolites of drugs. Whereas screening is talking to a patient or using a validated instrument, a questionnaire that the patient can complete in clinic in order to assess substance use, misuse, and uh, perhaps addiction. So to answer your question, how do you determine who should be screened for substance use, everyone should be screened. Screening should be universal and should be delivered with an instrument or an in-person conversation with a patient. So how do you start that conversation with your patients? A key principle of all clinical care is the establishment of a strong therapeutic alliance between the provider and the patient. And that alliance really rests upon dignity and respect. So what I do and what I recommend is asking permission to screen before you screen. For example, is it okay if I ask you some questions about drinking, smoking, and other drugs? And if the patient says yes, we ask those questions. But if the patient says no, we don't. So we ask permission and we respect their answer. And that, I think, goes a long way to establishing that therapeutic alliance. One of the benefits of especially prenatal care is that we see patients frequently. They come back month, week, and et cetera. And so laying that framework initially, establishing that therapeutic alliance from the get-go goes a very long way to actually be able, being able to provide comprehensive uh, and empathetic medical care. That sounds like a great approach. 
and dovetails nicely into our next question, how does pregnancy offer an opportunity for intervention? In the United States, almost all pregnant people get access to health insurance and therefore get access to health care. And compared to other stages of the reproductive health life course, we see more people in pregnancy than at the other stages. And therefore, public health-wise, it's an incredible opportunity for intervention. In addition, pregnant people are motivated to maximize their health. They all engage in behavioral change, and therefore, we can help support that through uh, behavioral health integration into prenatal care. How do you spot addictive behavior in someone who may not verbally disclose substance use? This is a complicated question. And before answering it, I think it's important to differentiate or to discuss what addiction is and what addiction is not. So I think of addiction, it's a brain-centered condition, but the symptoms are behaviors. Craving to use a substance, compulsive use, um, an inordinate amount of time spent thinking about obtaining, using, recovering from a substance. But really the most salient symptom of addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences. Knowing you're doing something that's harming yourself and others and being unable to stop doing it. That is a behavior. There is no sign or stigma of that. So the question how you spot addictive behavior in someone who may not verbally disclose use is problematic. And so I think the premise is misleading. And if we are only going to screen people who look like what we think a person who uses drugs looks like, then we're actually going to be operationalizing and reinforcing prejudice and discrimination, and we're going to miss people who might benefit from screening, diagnosis, and treatment. That makes a lot of sense. So once a patient screens positive for OUD, what is the management process? Can you walk us through your approach for that patient? This is a great question, and it's important in that it differentiates screening from diagnosis. So screening instruments are validated, and they suggest that somebody might have an addiction. But in order to establish the diagnosis of addiction, one needs to use diagnostic tools. And for use disorders, that would be the DSM version 5. So if somebody screens positive, the next step would be to uh, walk through the DSM criteria to see whether they have or don't have a use disorder, and then to categorize that use disorder on the spectrum of uh, mild, moderate, or severe. If somebody has the disease of addiction, they need treatment. So Following screening, diagnosis, the next step would be discussing treatment. Ideally, when we're talking about prenatal care and substance use and use disorder, the treatment for the substance use disorder would be delivered, co-located, integrated as a bundled part of the prenatal care services. If that is not available, but the patient has the disease of addiction, needs, and wants treatment, 
then I think it's important, and we should, and we will talk more about this. I think to create good linkages between prenatal care providers and local behavioral health providers. What interventions might you suggest to help patients change their behavior on a small scale? Behavior change takes time, and it isn't categorically linear. That means people don't progress, you know, slowly from point A to point B in a direct line. And there can be back and forths. There can be, you know, one step forward, two steps back. In fact, everybody's path through treatment and recovery is unique and individual. And so holding patients to somebody else's experience is uh, at at, at best, like, sort of misleading at worst really can be harmful. So I think it's important from the get-go to discuss or to to, to represent uh, that respect and dignity to the patient and to state, like, we will be here with you through the ups and the downs regardless. We're here for you. If your goal is recovery, our goal is your recovery too. And I think it's also important to reflect back to patients undergoing treatment and in recovery their their positive changes that you have seen them make that they may not embrace as um, strongly in a particular moment in time and and accept them, you know, without judgment, you know, when they uh, slip or when the change is backwards rather than forwards and et cetera. From a research perspective, there is a literature on incentives or contingency management, giving a patient a, uh, a reward, a cash voucher, um, et cetera, for uh, behavior changes, for uh, you know, negative urine drug tests or um, adherence to um, sequential clinic visits. And those have been shown in randomized controlled trials to be um, perhaps the strongest evidence or the strongest intervention to support behavior change in um, clinical trial environments. You mentioned accepting patients without judgment. That is a really important point. Can you explain a little bit about why it is that some people become addicted and others don't? This is a great question. Most people have used a substance to which some people develop an addiction. So why do some people become addicted and others don't? This is important from a public health, from a prevention, from a treatment, from an understanding of human biological and brain processes. We know that roughly 30% of addiction can be explained by a genetic cause or association. But most addiction is not explained by genetics. It's explained by environment, by context. And this includes childhood, in particular, childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences, which are experiences of neglect or abuse uh, or um, dysfunction. And we know from the original ACEs and subsequent studies that children who have five, a score of five or more on the ACEs have an increased odds of ever using a drug, injecting a drug, developing an addiction to a drug. So uh, 
large proportion of addiction in society can be uh, explained or is associated with adverse childhood experiences. In addition, there are structural factors, the availability of um, substances in a neighborhood, as well as the age of onset. We know that the earlier people use a substance, the greater the likelihood is that they will develop an addiction to the substance, which is one of the arguments on a public health perspective of having, you know, ages of restricting the age of purchase of alcohol or nicotine or cannabis like if and when um, it becomes legalized. Dr. Turplin, you mentioned traumatic experiences and ACEs. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. What I don't mean to suggest is that everyone with an addiction was abused as a child or everyone who is abused as a child will develop an addiction. Uh, these are strongly correlated, and there's a strong association um, that 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 is causal, but that does not mean that these are universal. And I think in particular clinically, when we work with people who use drugs and people with a use disorder, we want our care to be you know grounded in what we call trauma informed, which means aware of the trauma that people have experienced in the past and sometimes are still experiencing in their everyday life, and to avoid and to not re-traumatize people through the manner uh, and the structure of the clinical care delivery. What trauma-informed also means to me is supporting resilience and looking at how much people have overcome and reflecting that um, back to them. That added context is helpful. Thank you. Now, how about a patient who may be resistant to medication-assisted treatment, or MAT? What approaches or strategies would you use to address their resistance? One of the core principles of medical care is patient autonomy. And that includes the right of patients to refuse treatment entirely, parts of treatment such as medication. So it's important for us to support and embrace autonomy, even when that might mean that the patient is choosing to do something that is in conflict with the evidence base. So the evidence base for the treatment of opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder rests upon medications. If I have a patient who is resistant to medication, I would begin by, uh, one, explaining the evidence base. Why do we recommend medications for opioid or alcohol use disorder? Two, I would say regardless of what you decide, we support you. And if somebody decides not to take medication, then I would still you know, treat them like I would anybody else who is being treated with medication for, let's say, opioid use disorder. That means I would see them with the same frequency of visits, which is usually weekly initially until, you know, a certain degree of stability has been achieved, and then we space out the visits. And if they become unstable, we shorten the interval of um, visits. So I would apply that same principle of care 
um, to somebody who is receiving medication versus somebody who is not. We would make all the other resources available in terms of social support, counseling, care coordination, and et cetera. And throughout this, you know, like rest our care on autonomy, which means they can also, if the patient changes her mind, that's okay as well. Okay, this week, we we won't start medication now. I'm going to check in with you next week and see how it's going. And if she changes her mind, that's fine, either for medication or cheaper or whatever. But the core principle remains respect, dignity, and autonomy in our medical care. So let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the baby. What effects might opioid use in pregnancy have on a newborn? And what does current literature tell us? The short-term risk is withdrawal, which is readily manageable and treatable. The longer-term outcomes are mostly derived from cross-sectional data. There is a limited amount of prospective data. The prospective data, the infants are about children, three, four years old now, they show no differences in developmental outcomes of infants who had neonatal abstinence versus a standardized population health. I think overall this is a field that is uh, developing, so to speak, but there is nothing in the cross-sectional literature that rises to the level of concern or harm or certainly is in anywhere comparable to uh, nicotine or alcohol from a, a developmental outcome perspective. What would you suggest for those practices who may not have the infrastructure in place to support managing the patient's addiction? For example, how would you refer to a pain specialist if not available on site? If you don't have a case manager within your practice setting, what types of external resources are available? Well, first, I think that basic competence in addiction assessment and treatment is essential for all prenatal care providers. And I think all providers should become wavered to prescribe buprenorphine and should become competent in the continuation of a buprenorphine prescription. Second, I think we should really try to build ways to have integrated, co-located service delivery. We really need to meet people where they're at, and what we can provide in clinic, we should maximize that as much as possible. However, I completely understand the very real structural barriers that reflect our fragmented healthcare system. So, if one can't and most people can't provide co-located service delivery for addiction treatment and prenatal care simultaneously, if that can't be provided, I think close linkages between prenatal care and behavioral health providers in a geographic region is essential. And how do you go about finding those? One, you can, you know, ask and you might know who your local providers are, but Two, I would recommend that people reach out to their local behavioral health authority 
could be at the state level, but in particular at the county level, because they will know who the providers are, and they can provide and they can serve as a as a good bridge between the world of prenatal care and reproductive health in general and uh, behavioral health, and really um, assist people in um, in, in making those um, connections. To wrap things up, what are some resources or options available to help providers compassionately care for and manage this patient population and that help their patients seek treatment? So I want to repeat the importance of your local behavioral health authority. And um, second that with, you know, working at the state level. Uh, or finding the people at the state level who administer the treatment system. But for the provider, I think just getting wavered is insufficient usually. And, and, and we put all this training up front and then we kind of abandon you once you have your waiver. And that is completely unfair. So I think providers need to have access to and continuing training, so to speak. Um, and it is not just for them, but also for their clinic staff. There's something called the Provider Clinical Support System, PCSS, and the website is pcssnow.org. This is a repository that's updated continually of uh, both brief and um, longer CME-like content on a whole spectrum of uh, behavioral health um, and addiction treatment services. The other uh, resource that is uh, wonderful and underutilized is um, the UCSF Warm Line. This is a telephone line that's available from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's free. It's for providers to call. And um, it connects you to an expert uh, in addiction treatment um, who can walk through analgesic management, opioid dosing, tapering, resources, and et cetera. And um, the phone line for that is 855-300-3596. Thank you, Dr. Turplin, for joining us for today's podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information and additional podcasts on managing OUD in pregnancy, visit www.acogny.org and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ACOGD2 for updates on OUD and other cutting-edge medical education resources.